0: Welcome to Searchlight, a survey through Scripture with Pastor John Corson. It is our desire to bring you a systematic study of the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book. On our last program, Pastor John shared with us a very important spiritual truth. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. Once again, sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. That is, God doesn't just arbitrarily make up a list of items and call them sin and tell us not to do them or we'll get in trouble. Instead, God is a loving Father who knows what things will bring harm to us and warns us to stay away from these destructive behaviors. These are called sin by God because they are bad for us. Knowing this, we are now looking at a story in Judges chapter 3 that illustrates how to deal with destructive sin that seems to dominate us. To put things in proper context, we are going to review some of our last program, then continue in the story to see how God would have us
1: deal with sin. Here now is Pastor John. What can I do about the big sin, the heavyweight stuff? Oh, others might not know. I might have it covered fairly well. Others might not be all that aware. But I know within my soul that there is an issue. There is an oppressive weight. There is a sin that seems to dominate. What can I do? If there's such a thing in your life, or if you've ever wrestled with a specific sin, and I think all of us have, all of us do. Here's good news for me. Good news for you. Check this out. Our story deals with just that. Take a look with me at Judges chapter 3. They were oppressed and in bondage to a real heavyweight. His name, well, we'll see. The children, verse 12, of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. God's children, the Israelites, the Jewish people did evil in his sight. They were involved in evil, and God knew what that would do. It would destroy them. And so God is going to do something here to bring correction for them. The Lord, verse 12 says, strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. God is raising up The Moabite king, whose name was Eglon, to be an instrument of discipline, of chastening. That is, God's kids are going to get spanked, disciplined, because they keep plunging into sin. And God's heart is broken concerning his children, knowing what sin will do to them. In the book of Hebrews, it says to you and me, that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. I'm reading, don't turn there, just mark it if you wish. Hebrews 12, 6, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, that means spanks, and he scourges every son. If you be without chastisement, then you are bastards and not sons at all. God loves you and me so much that if we get out of line, he will chasten us. He will spank us. He will scourge us. He will discipline us. If you're here today and you say, hey, I'm doing what I want, when I want, where I want, with who I want, and hey, I'm not getting disciplined. I'm not getting spanked. I've got terrible news for you. It means that you are spiritually a bastard. You are illegitimate. You are not a true son or daughter of God. If you are getting away with sin continually and not being dealt with and being chastened, don't rejoice in that, but may it cause you to be very concerned today because what the Bible says is it's an indication that you're not one of his children. When my kids get out of line, I spank them when they were little and growing up, or ground them when they got older. I don't do that with the neighborhood children. They're not my children. And so too, God says, I will deal with my children. If they're out of line, I love them, and so I will bring discipline and scourging to them. Because I want to protect them from further danger, from further destruction. If anyone is listening and you say, I'm sinning, and it doesn't seem to cause any repercussions for me, be careful. It could be that you are not a child of God at all. And should your life end today, you would not be in heaven. You would be separated from him eternally. Well, be that as it may, God cared about his kids, so he strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, for you Bible students, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9 God says to the Israelites, his kids, do not mess with the Moabites. I have given them that land for their possession. You are not to meddle with them or cause distress to them. Listen, the Moabites, God says to his kids, don't bother them. They're not my children. Don't distress them. Let them do whatever they choose to. Don't go into their territory. They're in a whole different category, you see. So here God, with his kids now, is raising up a Moabite, the king of the Moabites named Eglon. What a great name. It describes him perfectly. He's shaped like a giant egg. He's the only man in the Bible who's called a very fat man. This guy is huge. Now we're not talking overweight by a couple hundred pounds. We're talking, well, Jabba the Hutt. If you happen to see Star Wars, remember Jabba? I mean, this guy is gigantic. We're not talking heavy or fat. We're talking beyond obese. We're talking planet. We're talking his own zip code. We're talking Jabba the Hutt. You see, this guy is giant. He's the only guy in the Bible who's ever singled out as being a fat man. He was very fat. Now, this guy, Eglon, raised up or allowed by the Lord to be the instrument of discipline for God's children who were getting into trouble again. So, Eglon, what does he do? He was raised up, verse 13, and he, Eglon, gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, two other nations that were perpetual enemies of the people of Israel, and... Eglon led the Moabites, his people, and the Ammonites, and the Amalekites, all enemies of Israel, and went up and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. The city of palm trees is Jericho. If you go to Jericho, and we do every time we go to Israel, it's an oasis town. It's got springs that come up, and and trees that are beautiful, and vegetation all around, it's a grand town there in the desert area down by the, by the Dead Sea area. Jericho, interesting. That's the place that Eglon took. He got his allies together, the Ammonites and the Amalekites along with his group, the Moabites and they spanked Israel and they took over the city of Jericho. Why? I suggest to you because Eglon wanted some fresh fruits and vegetables. I mean, Jericho was the place where, hey, food was growing, where there was an abundance of stuff to eat continually around the calendar year, you see, always stuff to eat burgers and french fries and shakes and what have you. So the children, verse 14 of Israel, served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Eglon is dominating their country, this great big Jabba the Hut character. He's dictating over God's children, has domination there in Israel, ruling from Jericho. After 18 years, verse 15 says, finally, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. They had enough. 18 years of being dominated by this fat guy. 18 years of this guy controlling and dictating and dominating them. Enough is enough. And finally they cry to the Lord. And that's what happens to you and me. We're his children. But the thing that comes into our lives, the thing that we've allowed to be enthroned in our hearts, that sin, that stuff, that thing, it begins to dominate. And finally, after time you say like they did that day enough I'm sick of this I'm tired of this junk I'm sick of this sin and you too like me like they did in this story you cry out to the Lord in sincerity no longer is it just an occasional Lord I know this isn't very good forgive me but rather Lord I can't stand this. It's got to go. This, this fat, oppressive sin, this heavyweight thing, this egg lawn that dominates over me. They cry to the Lord. You get to that place of finally crying, and that's when the father begins to move, you see. There comes a point when you truly say, this has got to stop. I can't go on. This mustn't continue anymore. A lot of people, frankly, a lot of times we don't see deliverance because we're not really desperate in desiring to see victory. We, we, we feel bad about getting caught, or we think this probably ought not to be. But there comes a moment in a man's life, in a woman's life, when a person finally says, That is enough. It's got to go. And finally, when they cried, it says to the Lord, they cried to him in sincerity, in intensity, in desperation. The Lord says, okay. And he raised up Ehud, the son of Girah, Verse 15 goes on to say, a Benjamite. The word Benjamin means son of my right hand. The right hand in Hebrew culture and Bible days, the right hand was the symbol of authority and strength and ability and power. And this guy, he was a Benjamite, Ehud was. But the problem was, verse 15 goes on to say, he was a man what? Left-handed. Uh-oh. His name means son of my right hand, you know. He's a Benjamite. But he was a lefty. He was a southpaw. Now, It could be that he was born just being a southpaw. It could also equally be that he was handicapped, that his right arm, his right hand, as the margin of your Bible says, was shut out or shut up. That is, it could be that he was a handicapped person. But either way, whether he was born left-handed or whether he lost the use of his right hand, it was an enigma. Here's a guy whose name means son of my right hand, and yet he is a lefty. He must have thought, this is a mistake. How could it be that me, I'm a Benjamite, but look at me. I'm a left-handed guy, this doesn't make sense. And sometimes you, sometimes we, look at ourselves and say, this just isn't right, Lord. You made a mistake when you made me this way. With my big nose, or my too brash personality, or my shyness, or my... Shortness, or my tallness or whatever it might be, we look at how we are designed and sometimes we say, oh, Lord, you made a mistake with me. Why didn't you make me more whatever it is that you wish that you were more of? He felt that way, no doubt, growing up day after day. But he's left-handed. And by him, this guy named Ehud, the children of Israel sent a present to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, what do you suspect they sent to Eglon, the king of Moab? I suggest to you it was food. They wanted to appease the fat guy. Let's just feed him. Let's get him off our back. Let's quiet him down. Let's send him a Big Mac. We'll send him food. Listen carefully. They sought to appease him. They sought to give a present to him. Verse 15 tells you and me. That is never the way to deal with sin, that big sin in your life, that thing that seems to dominate you. The temptation will be for you to say we 'll all just feed it a little bit one more one more time, one more toke, one more sip, one more look, one more touch, one more whatever it is that you struggle with. just if I could just feed this 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 thing that that is demanding. This thing that is dominating, this thing that is, if I could just feed this thing and maybe he'll back off. Listen, you feed Eglon, you feed Jabba, all that happens is he gets fatter and the problem gets weightier. Lust is like a fire. The more that you feed a fire, the hotter it burns and the more it demands And if you fall, if I fall, if we fall into that common misnomer, well, I'll just do it once more. I'll just have just a little bit, and maybe that will then satisfy the beast within me, the Eglon that seems to be dominating me. Careful, it never works that way. If I, if you, if we give in just a little bit and try to appease him or it or that, it just gets heavier and more dominating and more demanding. So they gave this present to Eglon, big mistake. But now the plot thickens. Ehud, 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 this deliverer, the hero of our story, the guy whose name means son of my right hand, but who was left handed, sad to say, he made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length. And he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. I like this guy. Ehud, our hero. He goes out to his workshop. While others are getting burgers and shakes and french fries to feed Eglon and to appease him, Ehud knows what he needs to do. He goes out to his garage and he makes a great big sword, a two-edged dagger. And he puts it under his raiment on his right thigh. The sword... What does the sword speak of in the Bible? Hebrews 4 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any what? Two-edged sword. The book of Ephesians chapter 6 says that we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is likened in the Bible to a sword. The sword is a picture of the Word of God, you see. What does he do? He takes the sword, he puts it underneath his raiment... On his right thigh, he hides the word of God, even as Psalm one nineteen says: "How shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed to the word? Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not what sin against thee." The key to overcoming sin, the key to getting rid of eglon and that oppression within, is to take the scriptures and put them in my heart to take the two-edged sword and put it just like this guy, Ehud, did when he put it underneath his raiment. Put the word of God, this sword, underneath your clothing. Put it in your heart. He does that. He puts it on his right thigh. Then they brought the present, verse 17, to Eglon, the king of Moab. No doubt this food, this stuff. And Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. So they give Eglon this present, I believe, no doubt it would be food. Great, thank you, he says, as he scarves away. And then the guys, the people of Israel, they, they turn back and they go their way. And now, and when that happened, when they made an end to offering the present, Ehud sent the people away, but he himself turned back around again, verse 19, and went back to the palace of Eglon and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. And Eglon says, a secret errand? Keep silent. I mean, this guy, you know, hey, listen up, he's saying. A secret errand as he's wiping away the ketchup and the pickles, you know, and, and the milkshake stuff from his mouth that day. And all that stood by went out from him, and Ehud came near unto him. He was sitting in a summer parlor, that is, the king was sitting there in his summer area, which he had for himself alone, and Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee, and he rose out of his seat. That is, Blah, he you can't even tell he's standing up, though. I mean, he just kind of rolls out of his seat. Oh, a message from God, some new recipe. Angel food cake, no doubt. You know, he was thinking something is grand. You know, after all, they just brought him a wonderful present previously. Oh, great, he says. At that point, Ehud, verse 21, put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh. It must have hit him like a bolt of lightning. He takes his left hand because he's left-handed. And he goes to his right thigh and it must have hit him right. That's why, that's why I'm left-handed. Because you see, men in that day being right-handed would always keep their weapons If they were concealed on their left thigh, you draw across the body, you see. And so oftentimes when a guy would go into the presence of a king, the king's security people would sometimes get sloppy and would just then frisk the left side because guys are right-handed. But in this case, Ehud was left-handed. And if indeed he was handicapped, All the more reason to not be concerned about him. They checked him out quickly, no problem. He can talk to the king. I know now, he must have thought in that moment, why I'm left-handed. God didn't make a mistake when he made me. It's all according to his purpose and his plan, his grand plan for me. Like that lady, Jan, she prayed as she was growing up. She prayed, oh, Lord, please change my brown eyes to blue. As she was three, four, five, and six, she would offer her prayers by her bed as little kids do with just such freedom and openness. Oh, God, please, if you love me, change my brown eyes to blue. Her eyes were never changed, obviously. She grows up and loves the Lord and goes overseas to India in the 60s where she is a missionary. She's serving in the northern provinces of India. During that time, there was a communist insurrection. And the communist guerrillas were taking control of village after village, including the village where Jan Morrison was a missionary. The communists surrounded the village, there was no way of escape, and they were killing all missionaries and all foreigners. The villagers cared about Jan. They they valued what she was doing in their little town, their little village, and so they dressed her up like one of them, and they put a dye on her skin to make her look like an Indian, a person from India. And when those insurrectionists, those guerrillas, those communists came into that town hours later, they lined up the 150 people or so that resided in the village because they heard, they knew that somewhere there was a foreigner in the midst of that little village. And Jan was standing there too, dressed like a native Indian with dye on her skin. And those guerrillas went person to person to person, looking each one in the eye trying to find if indeed there was a foreigner in the midst of them. And Jan tells a story of how she stood there when one of those gorillas looked her right in the eye and then passed on by, and she says, it hit me then, Lord, that's why I have brown eyes. Because if I had blue eyes, no matter what clothes I put on or what dye I have on my skin, I would have been discovered, and I would have been put to death in that moment, you see. God makes no mistakes in the way he makes you, in the way he makes me. You might say, well, I don't like my personality. Well, there's some reason that you're a jerk. You'll see. Hang in there. There's some reason you are the way you are. Me too. God makes you and makes me for purposes that only time will reveal, but it will. You watch, you wait, you'll see. I guarantee. And so here, Ehud, he takes his left hand, Ah, that's why, as he grabs the dagger that was under his garments from his right thigh, and he thrusts this this sword, verse 21, he takes it and thrusts it into Eglon's belly. I've got a secret message from God for you. Boom!
0: That's quite a message for Eglon. But it is even a bigger message for us. Unfortunately, we'll have to wait until our next program to find out this message. Please don't miss the conclusion to this very important teaching. This teaching is also available on the Searchlight website at johncorson.com. You will also find on the website Pastor John's books and other Bible study resources. Again, the address of the website is johncorson.com. Most of us desire to spend more time in prayer, just talking with the Lord and hearing from Him. But we often struggle in this area of prayer. In order to help us have a more consistent and effective prayer life, Pastor John has a book called Praying Through the Tabernacle. This book shows us a model of prayer that is based on the Old Testament tabernacle. This is a very practical tool for everyone who desires an intimate walk with the Lord. You may order Praying Through the Tabernacle from the Searchlight website at johncorson.com. Searchlight is a listener-supported ministry. We appreciate your prayers and support. May the Lord richly bless you.